Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show. I start the new year with a special episode today, a masterclass in leadership. And to talk about this important topic with me is Anthony Dayton, Chief Product Officer at Tamar Inc. Prior to Tamar, Anthony served as Chief Marketing Officer at Salonis, and before that, Anthony spent 13 years as Senior Vice President of Products at Click, building the company and product from a small Swedish startup to a global leading analytics platform. Anthony has held several leadership roles at Click, from product leadership to product marketing, and finally as their CTO, and has a wealth of experience leading different functions across geographies and different stages of a startup. So I'm delighted to have Anthony on the show with me today, and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Anthony, I know that you and I met at Siebel, but was that your first foray into leadership or did you have a leadership role somewhere before Siebel? I'd say even when I joined Siebel, I'm not sure I would have called myself a leader at, at that time and moment. I think over the my time at Siebel, I sort of grew into that. But yeah, I'd say that was largely my first real experience uh, with it. I think it's worth saying that people have opportunities to express leadership in all kinds of facets of their life. So, you know, work is obviously one, but there are moments of leadership in school or in clubs that you do. And so almost certainly there have been, there are other examples of the course of my life prior to people where there was some level of leadership. You said you grew into a leadership role. What are some of the things you did that allowed you to grow into this leadership role from what I remember quite quickly? So maybe you can talk a little bit about what did you do and are there books or people that you turn to to create the kind of leader you wanted to be? Sure. So maybe if we step back a little bit, maybe worth defining a bit of what we mean by leadership, because then I think it helps make clear how one might grow into that or experience that. So I make this strong differentiation between leadership and management. And I think they're often mixed up. And, and I think they're relatively distinct. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do both. And I think there are many cases in which people do do both. And it's also not the case that one does both at all times. Right? You can oscillate between them. And there are moments when one needs a great manager and moments when a company needs a great leader. But so what I think about as, as leadership is an ability or willingness to take a contrarian or difficult position and stick with it. Um, hmm. and, and then management is the ability to organize an effort to get things done. So if you think about sort of leadership as this you know, willingness to swim against the tide and management is almost like swimming with the tide or figuring out how to uh, swim most efficiently. So at Siebel, early on in my time at Siebel, you know, I'm hired as a you know entry level product manager. I think a lot of what I was doing was management. I was uh, trying to figure out how to operate within the system and and operate efficiently within the system and effectively. And oftentimes, things like management is really just about working hard. It's about doing more, staying late, you know, these sorts of things. What happened in particular? at Siebel, and slight digression here, I joined Siebel, it was about 700 employees. At its height, Siebel was about 8,000 employees. And that was over the course of, call it five years. So just mathematically, that's a tremendous amount of growth. And so I think one of the rules of life is growth creates opportunity. 
And that was absolutely true at Siebel, meaning in the context of this company that just grew in this really you know, hyper-paced kind of bananas way, the, the organization's always looking for people to take on big and new tasks. And so to get back to the root of the question, so, so what happened very specifically is Tom Siebel had this idea of employee relationship management or what we call ERM. It was the idea of applying CRM concepts to HR, to sort of managing people. And in typical Siebel fashion, he wanted to sort of create a startup within the context of the, the broader Siebel. And so I had the opportunity to, to join that group as we sort of started up this enterprise within Siebel. Um, we had a leader at the, at the, when we started it up. And then after, and her name was uh, Stacy Lawson. And after she left, that leadership opportunity was passed to me. So at its core, it was the growth at Siebel, which opened up this possibility for someone to step in and lead and manage this startup within the broader broader enterprise. So Siebel at that time was known for CRM. It wasn't known for ERM. ERM was this new thing that they were trying to create, a new idea within. So it was like a startup within a larger context. And I can imagine that most of the revenues were driven by the CRM, not by ERM. So in that context, how did you manage to influence and get support for your ideas, for your team, the resources that you needed? And what are some of the lessons about leadership in that specific role that you feel you've carried on later on? Yeah, so it goes directly to this idea of taking on a contrarian or difficult position. So the, the leader has to be the advocate for what on its face appears to be a crazy or stupid or certainly contrarian point of view. To, to your point, in the context of Siebel, where 90 99% of the revenues come from uh, core CRM, and probably within that come from you know, Salesforce automation, not really CRM. Here's a, you know, this uh, small band of, of crazies that are going to try to launch a, a sort of side business that's typical for startups, demand an outside portion of resources from the enterprise for something which is either not generating any revenue or generating a small amount of revenue. And that is sort of the, the essence of, of the leader. So this is true in startups as well. So you're going to go and you know, raise capital and get somebody or a group to fund this contrarian idea, something that by its nature hasn't been done because if, you know, otherwise it wouldn't be a startup and get them to agree to fund it. So, you know, at some level, the, the only thing you need to do is stay true to this contrarian point of view. And in, and in a sense, I think this creates the, the essence of what makes leadership so difficult because somebody who sticks with a contrarian point of view, just despite all evidence and ends up being right as a genius, somebody who sticks by a contrarian view that ends up being wrong is a lunatic. And so you have this kind of odd problem of needing to be both contrarian, but also right. So I think that sometimes when people think about leadership, they think that it's just holding contrarian views, but that isn't actually true. You have to hold the right contrarian view. 
And so that means being involved uh, in the details. So I think the leadership can often be misinterpreted to mean that what you're going to do is hold this contrarian view, ignore all signal, right? And just sort of literally run yourself into a wall until it happens, until something, I don't know. But in the context of Siebel, for example, it meant needing to be kind of over-prepared and completely ready for, uh, and, and scrappy when it came to, for example, getting access to engineering or resources. Uh, very, very specific and uh, story here. It, it, when it came to planning a release, what we did on the ERM team is we had all of our marketing requirements documents and specifications written out to end levels of detail. So that when it came to allocate engineering resources, we could walk into that meeting literally with the world's thickest binder and say, Kachunk, like here we are, we're ready. And any team that was that blinked and wasn't quite ready with their MRDs or with their requirements, if they were going to lose resources to us. And that again, it, it doesn't mean that the leader there is about organizing that effort to, to have access to those details to be ready for that resource allocation and capture that, you know, when it happens. So yeah, leadership's not just about holding this contrarian view and not listening. Sometimes it means being involved in the minutiae, the details, so that uh, you, can, you can capture those opportunities. What about this saying that you hear, you know, fake it till you make it? How much of that is true when you're trying to be that contrarian leader in terms of outwardly showing your absolute 100% belief in it? How important is that versus faking it just to to make that possibility actually play out? I think those are actually the same thing. So fake it till you make it is, is acknowledging this, this truth, which is as a leader, you're often asked to take a position that by all rational evidence is not the, the correct position today to take and, and then sticking by that position. And then the faking it, I think, is a really interesting choice of words. Fake it doesn't mean lie. It means collect the evidence which does support your position and make that argument as best as you can. The, the saying isn't um, yell until you make it. I can't think of a perfect way of framing it, but meaning it isn't to simply repeat the truth until, it, until you make it. It's to come up with the best argument you can make in the context of, of the data you have to, to make it. So, do you feel you need to believe in it to be able to do that well? You need to, well, you know, instead of like, obviously you need to believe in it, but not only do you need to believe in it, but you need to be able to convince others that, that they should believe in it. And that's about collecting that evidence and, and making that pitch. So th- this is why I think in venture, uh, you know, for, for startups, the pitch is such an important part of the, the process because it's what you're really doing in the pitch is collecting the best evidence you can that, that your position is actually the right one. Again, despite mm-hmm. the overwhelming evidence that it isn't, <laughs> you know, like right. most people could come up with and collect a whole bunch of evidence that suggests you're wrong. And you need to sort of both convince early employees, but also funders, et cetera, that in fact, you're right. Right. You made a distinction between leadership and management. And I think that's one that there's been a lot of debate about in terms of what's needed, what's important. 
having been in several companies at various stages in that company's life, what is your view on what's needed in terms of leadership and management or one versus the other? I think both are very, very important. And I think there's a, a reductive reasoning which can say, no, no, like the only thing that matters is uh, strong leadership. I think, by the way, I think there are companies of people who, who sort of excessively believe in management that we'll simply manage our way. But these are the types of people who use you know, dashboards and KPIs, OKRs as sort of their only management technique. By the way, I, slight digression, but I think this is also why MBAs get such a bad name in Silicon Valley. I mean, by its nature, master's in business administration, uh, MBAs are often taught management. And, and I think uh, they step into companies and roles where leadership is needed and respond by managing. And that's obviously not going to work very well. But I think both are needed. So I've often uh, framed it in the following way. Whenever you're building a company, there are kind of two types of people that you will hire or that you will have in the business. There are build the company people and scale the company people. And th there's a tendency for people to believe that one or of those groups uh, is better than the other. And I'm going to encourage you to think not in terms of better or worse, but of needed at a moment or not needed uh, or less needed at a moment. So build the company people are the kind of people that you can throw into a situation where they have zero experience and they'll be completely comfortable and they'll work it out. No amount of ambiguity is uncomfortable for them. They simply, in some ways, they sort of thrive. But the less that's known about what needs to be done, the better from their perspective. Like, I'll work it out. I'd rather kind of work from first principles. Scale the company people, uh, take something that works really badly and find ways to make it work better. Typically, if you think about a software development project process, thinking about something like the agile development model, they like born agile. Like they just sit and take something that's that's operating and figure out how to shave 10% off of it, 10% off of it, 10% until it works incredibly well. And again, I'm trying to be really careful to frame these as uh, sort of equal members. I think early in a company's history, you tend to see more build the company people by their nature. And you know, this is why you see startups filled with people that have no idea what they're doing. They're completely inefficient. They waste capital. They waste resources. You look at some of the things they're doing and go, couldn't you find someone who knows what they're doing here instead of just kind of working from first principles? But that's a, you know, that's a group filled with build the company people. In contrast, if you look at you know, bigger companies that are more established, you tend to see more scale the company people because they have existing processes and what they need to do is figure out how to do those things efficiently. And so there you get these complaints like, well, why <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've optimized the hell out of your lead generation process, but you're, but you're not building enough, but you're not taking this, you know, this new point of view or, or doing this new thing. You're just taking the same thing and doing it slightly better. And again, like it's not good or bad. They're just different. And also, I think people are comfortable in these. I've worked with people who are very clearly building the company people. You know, if you ask them to do a process a second time, they look at you and roll their eyes like, I don't want to do it again. I just did it. Like, why do you need me to do it again? They're not interested in making it better. They're interested in setting it up. At the same time, you work with people, you give them something kind of new and unexpected, and they freeze. And they just like, I, what do you mean there's no playbook? Where's the manual? I can't handle this sort of ambiguity. In contrast, if you give them something 
it's been done once or twice and say, do it better, they'll, they do an amazing job. So finding where people's comfort is and then putting them in those positions, that's a really important part. Yeah, I think that brings us to one of my questions around hiring. As a leader, you have to know when you need what, right? One of the things I remember about my time at Sebo working for you is every member of our team were not just people who were smart and driven, but they were also extremely collaborative and supportive. All of them now have gone on to do great things in their own right. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your hiring philosophy. What do you look for when you're hiring? And what are some insightful questions that you tend to ask that really unearths what that individual is about and if they would make a good cultural fit? So first thing, I'd be a little careful. You know, the question of hiring is, I think, at least a large part, a managerial question, not a leadership question. Because it really centers around this idea of how do I organize the efforts to get things done and not what the effort should be. In some ways, and this is going to sound slightly dark, so bear with me, but the, the question of firing people is much more a leadership question. So meaning when you find yourself in a position where you recognize that the people or person on the team is the wrong person for the job, that doesn't, and again, to be clear, that doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but that they're not the right fit for that. Or, you know, if you need to do something new and you have the wrong team, those can be leadership questions. And when I say can be, they can also be managerial questions. Meaning if it's simply a question of reorganizing, that's pretty clearly managerial. If it's a question of making a tough decision, meaning taking that contrarian view that and doing that in a sensitive and respectful way, that often is a leadership question. So um, maybe a slightly different way of saying that is that it has never come to pass that having terminated someone that the leader or organization has said, oh, we should have waited. We did that too quickly. Like It always happens that you say, oh, we should have done that six months ago because leadership is hard and taking these contrarian positions is hard. But that wasn't what you asked. So you'd ask the question of interviewing and how how do you figure that out? Um, this is not going to be incredibly insightful, but just very briefly, uh, there are a couple of things I would say on recruiting. So the first is you want to do a lot of interviewing and you need to meet a lot of people. It's a little bit like a sales pipeline, except that you're the buyer, which is not a, so it's not mm-hmm. a great analogy. And, and the reason for that is you're going to learn as much through the recruiting process um, about yourself and about what needs to be done than you are about the candidates that you meet. And so doing a lot of recruiting, meeting a lot of people, even if it's not in the context of a a, specific recruitment process. This is going to sound horribly simplistic, but the best question I ask in recruiting is for people to tell me about themselves. I know that sounds like very simplistic, but What I often will do, I'm going to give away my interviewing technique. So what I do in interviews is I start the interview by giving someone an introduction to me, who I am, what I do, broadly speaking, what I've done in my my career. And then I turn it around to them and I say, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? And what I find is that it often becomes very telling. So some people will, you know, then read me their resume, which I have. So that's a waste of energy. Some people will just drone on for 25 minutes, you know, <laughs> telling me about themselves. And, and then other people will pattern match. So they'll have heard what I did and they'll say, okay, so 
he's asking me this question about who I am, and he's just giving me a little, you know, two-minute speech about who he is, I'm going to match like for like, and I'm going to sort of respond um, to that question in, in the same way that this person introduced. And I find that it's, it often can be a very good way of, of figuring out where the person is in their own head. Do they have a pitch? Can they tell me a bit about themselves in a way that isn't delineating the facts and figures, but highlighting the best of what they've done and, you know, and like you would for a product pitch, so to speak, are they empathetic and they hear what I said and, and play back in kind, not the same thing, obviously, but from their perspective, those sorts of things. So I find that can be very useful. And the only other sort of practical advice I give is, which again, is no, no great insight, but asking questions of the type, describe a situation when, or share with me when the following happened, how you responded. It gives people license to storytell and, and often will reveal things about those experiences that aren't captured in the mechanics of them, the, what happened. Okay. Well, let's move from SIBO to Click, which when you joined was, as you said, a small Swedish software company, and you've grown it from a few people to a public company and a market leader. And you did this by taking on different roles at various times, product leadership, product marketing, CTO. I would love to hear a little bit about how you see your personal journey. How did you as a person evolve as a leader in that journey with Click? Sure. The first thing to recognize is that Click was many different kinds of companies over the time that I was there. So in the early days of Click, were exceptionally difficult. So we had this very small Swedish company that literally no one had ever heard of. And quite frankly, it was hard to sell Click software because you know, for, no one knew who we were. But also we had this very we had an in-memory desktop-based analytics tool when everyone else was buying reporting tools, Cognos, et cetera. So you know, the first few years were difficult. Then there's this period of sort of hyper growth where you know we start to catch on, it's a bunch of technical reasons why that happened. X64 from Intel gets shipped. Windows for X64 from Microsoft is shipped. Those are platform shifts that really helped click. Then we become a public company and we are a successful public company for a number of years. And then at some point become an unsuccessful public company. So there's a whole set of stories there. And then eventually go private. So my point in, in, in the story is this isn't one company. This is a series of very different kinds of companies. And to your point, I think there are also different demands on me personally, like you know, roles I've asked to take on, roles the company needs. And oftentimes those are sort of thoughtfully planned, although in many cases they're not. So uh, the one thing that sort of stands out in the my experience at Click <clears throat> is the CTO role. So often people ask, well, how and why were you CTO? And just to be careful for a second, CTO in this context means that I ran not only the product management team, but the development team itself. And you know, so that you would think that there's some incredibly complex story behind this, and there isn't. <laughs> the truth is that the then CTO was injured and had to leave the business. And so it was this you know, vacuum where we said, we need someone to run engineering. Like, who could it be? And I s- stepped up to, to take that challenge on. So, and, and frankly, wasn't you know, particularly good at it. I mean, you know, as quickly as I could, knew I needed to hire somebody who could who could run the team. So anyway, it, there, there's a lot there are a lot of experiences embedded in the the time 
But many of them were what I would call managerial experiences, where the, the task was organizing how we get the effort done. There were some very specific instances of what I would call true leadership. I'm happy to share some of those at the time. Yeah, I would love to hear what are some of those defining moments of leadership that defined your style? So I think it's, a, it's also a good example of, of the distinction that I'm trying to draw between leadership and management. So the best example I can share is Click, the original product was Click View, which started as a desktop product, became a server product, et cetera. And after we went, or actually right around the time we were going public, the, there's this competitor that, that starts up in Tableau. And you know, I think it's fair to say that Tableau's product was very basic relative to Click, and click or Click View, to be very precise. Click View was a very sophisticated tool. Uh, Tableau was a very basic tool, much easier to use, much less capable, but easier to use. And so this is a good story of sort of leadership failure and success. So the, the failure was we were going public in 2010. And rather than take on the Tableau threat directly, and, and in a sense, validate the threat right around the time we're going public, we chose to bury our heads in the sand and avoid the threat so that we got ourselves to a point a year or two after we did public when having ignored the threat that it, it was uh, acute and it needed to be addressed. And that began an effort where we built uh, what we think of today as ClickSense, which is a radical rethink of Click's product uh, from the perspective of making it mobile first, easy to use, et cetera. Now, when we built ClickSense, this is a perfect example of needing to, to lead. Because mm. what it required us to do is to, to look our you know, leading product, ClickView, in the eye and say, we need to reinvent ourselves and build this wholly new vision for, for what the, the product can do. And most people in the company, and maybe even outside, and certainly many customers said, you know, absolutely not. What I want is more ClickView. And, and that was certainly the managerially correct answer, just to keep building ClickView. And instead, what we need to do is over-allocate resources to building ClickSense. So the leadership uh, sort of idea there is to hold this contrarian view and sort of promote it in the face of overwhelming evidence otherwise. The little-known story is that the early work on building ClickSense was not very successful. So early versions were barely held together would be a nice way of saying it. There were lots of sort of both engineering and product management mistakes that were made as we built out early versions of ClickSense. And the managerially correct answer to this problem would have been to abandon the effort and build another version of ClickView. But this also gets to the point about sometimes leadership is about being in the details. So I was installing, kind of personally, installing early versions of ClickSense and using them on a, literally on a daily basis and had a very good handle the reality of the development process. So hmm. we went off the rails for a period. We worked hard to get it back on the rails. And, and then I had to be involved enough of the details to know that, in fact, we were going to get to the finish line and be able to ship a GA version, commercially available version of ClickSense. So that when the managers, so to speak, came and said, we got to just cancel, we got to you know, cut bait, cancel this project and, and ship another version of, of ClickView. 
I could have the ability to say, you know what, actually, I've sort of seen the detail, but I know that we can, we can get this thing over the finish line and then actually get that done. It was absolutely an effort that could have gone either way. It was either going to be successful or an abject failure. But, and it was certainly was taking a contrarian view. So for me, that was a, you know, a good example of leadership. And by the way, leadership, another sort of easy way to see if you're in a leadership moment is if uh, at the point of success, everybody turns backwards and says, oh, yeah, I saw it all along. Uh, that, whenever uh, you know a startup goes public or gets a big funding round, you know everybody sort of says, "Well, of course, it's obvious now that that was the, the right decision." And that was certainly true for, for building ClickSense. When we finally did ship, everybody turned around and said, "Well, of course, that was the right right thing to do." Perfect, perfect, perfect <laughs> I can assure you that at the time, nobody said that. So, and that's sort of the way you know you were taking a tough leadership position. Well, and it sounds to me like in addition to believing and taking a tough position, which was contrary to what everybody was saying at that time, you also needed to be in the details and really sure about what was going on so that you could support that process in the early days where there's so much more doubt perhaps than, than certainty. Yes. And I, again, I think that sometimes leadership gets misinterpreted to mean pontification, that the, the essence of leadership is to take a a crazy point of view and then just beat on about it. And, and again, the problem is that sometimes that's successful, that even a terrible dart player will sometimes hit a bullseye. So one needs to be very careful to remember that you know, leadership is about, is about having conviction on the contrarian view. And then to your point, knowing and understanding the details enough to continuously support it in the face of a bunch of people that are going to tell you that, that you're wrong. At some point, regardless of how good of a leader you are or not, you need to be a good manager. The management aspect is so important. But what if you're not a good manager? What should entrepreneurs do? They, they should almost certainly hire good managers and then get out of their way. And there are plenty of good examples of this. If you look at the history of, of startups, of startup leaders recognizing that and, and hiring to fill that gap. It's, it requires a level of, of self-awareness and um, self-introspection that not everybody has, but probably is a necessary condition to success uh, for any entrepreneur. It is, I think, also possible to train oneself, certainly to be a better manager, if you can't necessarily be a great manager. So there's a reason that there is an MBA program, meaning there's a, uh, a set of classwork that one can do to be a manager. It's because I think that the techniques of management are not some sort of uh, voodoo science or something that, you know, they're relatively well understood. They're practical questions. And, and I mean, it's stupid stuff. Like, do you hold a weekly staff meeting? What's your hiring and compensation plan? Uh, is there a budget? What are your you know, financial reporting and controls in place? And if those things, when I say them, make you roll your eyes and want to go to sleep, maybe time to recognize that that's not your strength and, and hire in to fill those gaps in the entrepreneurial effort. So, okay. yeah, I think it's very hard to hire leadership. Although I think that as you build 
an entrepreneurial venture is you're going to find all kinds of leaders inside your organization, you know, supporting that is a, and sort of growing that is a really important part of in ultimately building a big company. Uh, okay. But, but hiring management is, uh, is probably the best solution to the problem. Okay. You've worked in companies that have had teams in different parts of geos in Europe and US, other parts of the world as well. Do you find that there's a difference if you have a team that's mainly European, does your leadership style need to be different than if your team is more American perhaps? Yes, yes. But I also think that that difference over time is, is diminishing as, as the world is getting more global and as people are moving around. But, but very broadly, the difference I see is that in Europe, exceptionalism isn't celebrated. And in the US, mm -hmm. only exceptionalism is celebrated. Just to pick on a very specific and uh, practical example, early in my time at Click, and in fairness, you know, many, many years ago, I was introduced to this Swedish concept of logom. And I do not speak Swedish or purport to have any particular insight into Swedish culture, but I was introduced to this very specific concept. And the concept it literally translates to in moderation or sort of being happy with what you get. You know, the worst thing you can do in Sweden is give somebody uh, no raise. The only thing worse than that is to give them a really big raise. What people want is sort of the average raise. They want everyone to sort of get roughly the same. And any sort of deviation from the average is considered bad. In the US, you know, obviously the goal is to get as big a raise as you can. And if you could do it at the cost of somebody else getting a raise, even better. Like those sorts of differences, I think, are taught from grade school through and are really are part of a cultural identity. It's dangerous to make broad generalizations, but just very briefly, what you find is that great European marketing is rare. Generally speaking, great marketing comes out of the US. And because marketing is about celebrating exceptionalism. And interestingly, when you look at uh, successful European marketing, it's often anti-marketing. So you know, think about uh, Volkswagen, Farfagnugan, which is sort of like a driving pleasure. Right? Or even or another VW example is uh, Think Small. Now, these are sort of anti-campaigns. Uh, yeah. And you know, the U.S. is you know, much more straightforward, sort of exceptionalism. Again, which isn't to say you can't do you know, great marketing in Europe. It's just that it's not built into the cultural identity. That leads me into another question around performance management and nurturing talent. And what, in your mind, differentiates good leaders from bad ones in terms of how they conduct performance reviews, especially given some of these nuances that you talk about by function or by geo, where there's a cultural element to it as well? Sure. And again, this is a good moment to sort of point out the difference between leadership and management. A lot of the performance management task is really a managerial task, and it's the mechanics of is there a system by which we evaluate uh, uh, performance and that we uh, compensate for it? How do we think about uh, hiring and firing, that sort of process of the employee life cycle? Those are managerial questions. The leadership questions are questions of equity, fairness, doing the, the right thing uh, versus the expedient thing. And again, those are often questions that are take a contrarian view. So the leadership problem, for example, in a performance review, 
the simple thing to do is to leave well enough alone. You have somebody in a role, they're doing an adequate job, but they're not, they're not wildly happy. You're not wildly happy with them, but you know, no one's getting hurt. You leave that alone, right? No, the leadership thing to do in that situation is to, is to take the tough position and saying, we as an organization can do better and that person can do better. They can do better in their job and their life. They will be more successful in a different job, in a different role, maybe even at a different company. Again, the managerial, the simple thing to do in the context of them just you know, taking pay or bonuses is to say, we're just going to give everyone roughly the same bonus or something. And, and the, the leadership thing to do is to, is to create you know, some dispersion, some uh, variance in that so that you can communicate uh, where people are really being successful or not. The, the point I'm trying to get to is leadership is about uh, doing the right thing and standing up for principles of fairness. Another example, just to make it more relevant in the moment, there's a tendency to hire people that look like the people who you are or that exist in your company already. And managerially, it, you know, it often fits nicely into the system. Like you, you do these interviews for culture and fit. And really what you're interviewing for is, does this person look like the people we've already hired? The yep. tough contrarian leadership position is to go find people that challenge the organization, that think differently, that have different backgrounds and points of view, and that often can be expressed as uh, different gender or ethnic backgrounds that don't fit with the, the predominant uh, type of the, the organization. That's a good distinction of the sort of leadership versus management. Oftentimes, these questions of performance management are the assumption is that just good management will get you there. And Hopefully, what I'm pointing out is that it needs to be a combination of obviously there needs to be a system, there needs to be good management, but there also needs to be often opportunities for strong leadership. And I think that idea of leadership, performance, and doing the right thing, I don't think there's ever been a more important time to demonstrate that as, as it is today, where you have this pandemic and probably every company is struggling with how to balance the needs of their employees on one side, the needs even of their customers who are probably struggling, and then your own objectives and, and business goals. What do good leaders do here? Or what kind of advice would you give to people in this situation about leadership? So I think um, thinking uh, deeply about what the contrarian positions one holds are and sometimes I think, even though it sounds a little odd, it's sometimes helpful to actually write these things down. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to publish them you know, on a blog or something. Not all writing needs to be public. But there's a sort of power in, in committing it to paper. I think sometimes there's a sense that, oh, no, I, I know my principles. I have them in my head. And then you actually go to write them down and you find that maybe you know them a little less well than you thought you did. So, so spending the time to be precise about things and, and documenting them and writing them down. Again, even if you only keep it for yourself. And I think your point is well taken that in the context of the current environment where everything is stressed and nobody is happy and, and no employee is like excited to come to work because work means 
going to your you know living room or something. You know, and customers are struggling to buy and justify purchases and things like that. Like in the context of all of that, having some true north, having some sense of the principles that matter to you, hopefully, would force you in a position of making decisions sooner than you might have otherwise, right? and find more moments to demonstrate leadership. That's the most positive hope I can have for the the current pandemic environment. And before I go into this rapid round, is there anything you would give as advice to your younger self about leadership or just entrepreneurs that are at various stages in their journey, leading their company and their vision? If I gave any advice to my younger self or to an entrepreneur, I I think there's this feeling that leadership is good and righteous and fulfilling managerial stuff is boring and busy work. And the truth is almost backwards. Leadership is hard, like really hard. It means standing up in the face of a bunch of people who tell you you're wrong and needing to hold an opposite position. And, and managerial stuff is often quite easy. As I said, it's a, you can freaking go to school for it. It's not that hard. So you, you know, read the book, do the stuff, you'll be all right. And my experience of entrepreneurs and having worked with them, talked to them, et cetera, I think the common refrain I hear that they didn't realize how hard the leadership thing was. And maybe, I mean, I'm not sure they would say this, but for how easy the managerial thing is. And I think as a young person starting a career in tech, I think I probably underestimated and discounted the challenge of leadership. And it's easy when you look at a CEO, you, you, know, you, you, you point fingers at a Tom Siebel and you say, why is he doing that? You know, whatever. Right. And to, to not recognize how, you know, to be on the opposite end of that contrarian view and hold the position, which is obvious, of course, and not realize how hard it is to be that, to be that leader and to stick one's neck out there and hold a different view. Given we're talking about leadership, what do you think is more valuable? Instinct? experience or data? As it relates to leadership, I think of those, I think all three are obviously important. I think instinct is almost certainly the best, the leading sort of leadership quality. It's important to sort of recognize where instinct comes from. It's your native reaction against temporary data. As I suggested, leadership needs to be backed up by the details. You need to be involved and understand the data etc. But it is about seeing something different in that signal than most people see. That's what makes it leadership and not management. That is a nice way of summarizing how entrepreneurs should think about leadership in their journey. I'm going to switch over to some quick questions that I would love to get your thoughts on. Your favorite books that you would recommend? I'm going, to, I'm going to disappoint you on that one. I, I haven't, I haven't, I don't, you know, read an enormous number of uh, books. And in particular, I would say, again, it's going to sound horrible, but I find business books largely useless. And okay, and I should be careful. Like I think they're like junk food. They're not. They're not going to. They're not healthy. They can be tasty. They can be fun to read. But it's rare that you read one that sort of truly advances. You're thinking other than, again, like it does give you calories. I mean, there's all stuff in there, which no one's going to sort of disagree with. 
I find, you know, sort of reading for pleasure as a much more fruitful exercise. And oftentimes, you know, the essence of almost every great novel is a contrarian holding a position <laughs> to adversity. I and mean, that's sort of like the archetype of a, a novel. And I think those are, you know, if you're looking for ways to build leadership, those are much better books to, to read yeah. and, and probably more fun, you know, all things. Yeah. Any that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be a business book. I actually read two books over the summer. I read The Power of One. It was made into a movie, which is always a bad sign as it relates to books, but it's a nice book. It's, it's a book about a young child growing up in apartheid South Africa, something that's you know, mildly near and dear to my heart that has been born in South Africa. The book tells the story of this, this young kid who has a very clear and strong moral compass there's certainly an, uh, an element of storytelling. He's you know, incredibly successful, uh, despite all the odds, so to speak, but, and all of the sort of setbacks over, over the course of the book. And I suppose you could attribute that to his strong moral, moral compass. And the other book that I read over the, the summer, was, which I will say I sort of reread, I think I first read probably in high school, was 1984. It was very of the moment in the U.S. And, yeah. you know, it was a... A very sobering read and, and put you back in this position of sort of seeing a lot of what's happening in the U.S., but probably also globally. And, and this yeah. issue of truth and reality and fake news, et cetera, full credit, that book was prescient on a level which I think is hard to fathom when it was written. Anyway, so those are two that, that come to mind, but those are certainly not business books. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing that it still remains so relevant. Yes. today. What about a productivity tool? What's your favorite productivity tool? I, I always find myself playing with all kinds of productivity tools. The most recent one I've started to use, and I have to say, I totally love. And I, my, for me, my bar is very simple, which is, do I pay for it or not? I'm, I'm notoriously cheap. And so the, I find myself, if I'm willing to pay for something, it must be very valuable. So there's this product called Sh uh, Shift. And the, the website's getshift.com. And in, in some ways, it's a totally simple idea, which is it's a single browser that you can create these work areas that hold a Google login for that work area. So if you have a personal Gmail and a corporate Gmail, and maybe some other Google logins for other random stuff that you're involved in, each one of those gets its own space. And then when you're working in that space, you're working in that Google login context. It also allows you to plug other applications like Zoom and other things. So it means you have one window with all of your Google logins in it that uh, and you can easily switch context. I know you've traveled a lot to several European cities in, in your different roles that you've had. Do you have a favorite European city? Wow, that's a tough one. Favorite European city. I worked for a Swedish company for uh, a long time and I spent a lot of time in Sweden. I have to say I did come to really enjoy spending time in southern Sweden. So Click was headquartered in Lund, which is a sort of university town, roughly equivalent to Cambridge, Mass. And Malmo, which was sort of the big city nearby, maybe vaguely equivalent to Boston in size. That was a really nice combination of places to be. And I ended up quite enjoying it. And, you know, Swedish people and culture are very open. And, you know, like, despite the fact that I absolutely no capacity to speak uh, Swedish. You know, they all spoke English and sort of welcomed me in any way. But one of the, the most fun times I had, Swedish midsummer is just a massive party and it's a 
national celebration. And I brought the whole family to Sweden and we spent that week of midsummers and culminating in Midsummer's Day in Southern Sweden. It was just a tremendously fun experience. Sounds lovely. Okay. So, and my last question, do you have a favorite quote? I feel like it's leadership. You're my first podcast of 2021. Do you have a quote that you'd like to end with? I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. I'm probably, and I certainly can't uh, attribute it, but there's this, I don't know, luck favors the prepared or some vague, vague version thereof, I think is a really nice way to think about the leadership challenge. A lot of, I, the longer you operate in the software business in general and technology in general, you start to recognize how luck plays a much bigger role than people. Uh, we, we talked about this idea of leadership being a contrarian view. You know, there are contrarians who end up being right uh, because they are lucky. Uh, they're obviously contrarians who end up being right because they saw something others didn't. Uh, it's very hard to tease apart those differences. And I think we all in our lives and careers and work benefit tremendously from randomness and, and luck. Uh, on the other hand, being able to recognize when that happens and take advantage of it, I think that's the something that helps differentiate success and failure. So I'm not sure if I got the quote exactly right, but certainly the idea, you know, luck benefits the, the prepared. I love it. Thank you so much, Anthony, for coming on this podcast. It's been an inspiring conversation on a very important topic. And thank you so much for making the time to be here. A pleasure. 